Why, hello there. Welcome back to the show. This is Jonathan Edwards with PureAndSimpleBible.com, and this is the Pure and Simple Bible Podcast. Thankful for your diligent attention and for your uh, commitment to uh, listen along with me. I'm thankful for those who have subscribed to the podcast. And if you haven't done that yet, if you're just listening on your web browser or uh, I don't know any other way that you could do it other than that, but if you're just listening to it and uh, you haven't subscribed yet, subscribing to the the podcast is very helpful. It helps get the podcast out to a broader audience. It helps me with the analytics to know that it's uh, a worthwhile endeavor. And it also is going to be helpful whenever people are searching for podcasts to uh, see that there's a lot of people subscribed to it, and so it, it seems like it's a worthwhile podcast if they're just taking it at face value. So uh, here's my encouragement again. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Now, I'm in the middle of a, um, some people might call it a rant. I don't want it to come off that way, but I'm in the middle of a uh, self-reflection, right? I don't have a, a guest for this mini-series on instrumental music, but it's me talking about instruments in the worship service and how even though millions of people go to places where there is a praise band or there is instruments that are designed to uh, uplift and to help make the service more dynamic, the point that I'm trying to advocate is that if we want to be consistent with the Bible and what the New Testament teaches on our worship service, then we're going to give that up, and we're going to worship God in spirit and truth by singing a cappella. That means everybody singing together without the aid of instruments, or as the phrase a cappella means, songs of the church, or according to the church. Now, last week we considered several arguments that people who uh, advocate for musical instruments often use and scriptures that they might use out of context and then how we can answer them in context. We're continuing with that concept today. So um, I invite you to join me. This is from a previous recording that I've made. So here I am recording the intro to it. Uh, we're we're going to jump back into that and uh, Though it's not a dialogue between two people, I hope it comes off that way where maybe I'm asking the questions that you might ask according to this subject. So here we go, back into a conversation about musical instruments and a cappella singing in the Lord's Church. Number seven, there is no authority for congregational singing in the New Testament. There's only verses about singing. Ooh, so this one's a little bit tricky, right? So uh, they agree that there are scriptures about singing, but they're saying that doesn't apply to congregational singing. Look at Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. These people will say the context isn't even about congregational worship. It's about a Christian's personal responsibility. We haven't read them, so I'm going to read them now. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You know what? There is a Christian's personal responsibility in those verses. But you know what? Part of that responsibility, there's a key phrase in each of those verses, to one another. It says we're supposed to, in all wisdom, teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that we are to speak to one another 
according to Ephesians 5.19. So if I couldn't emphasize those two verses anymore, those, those words, we're supposed to be doing it to whom? To one another. But there are other scriptures as well that go along with it. So yes, I have a personal responsibility to sing. And that's going to be on me to do it, right? And I can't uh, go around with a big stick and make sure that you're doing it, right? That's on you. But look at what Hebrews 2 verse 12 says. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise. Ah, so in the assembly, singing is happening. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So when people say there's no authority for congregational singing and that the only authority we have is to sing, when you combine the principles and the commands of the Bible, you have a complete picture, and that is that, one, yes, I'm personally commanded to sing, but part of that command is I'm supposed to be doing it with others. So that is the authority of the congregation right there. When we get together, we're supposed to be doing it to one another for edification. How do you do that when you have a praise band? And the instruments and the singer are doing all the work. And you're not. You're not obeying the command of doing it to one another. All right, let's look at number eight. This, to me, is probably the one I've heard the most. Other than number nine, which, you know, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, number eight is this. God is the giver of gifts. Why would God give gifts and people not be able to use them to praise him? Right, And so what, what some say, and, and I hear this a lot, is that it's unfair that God would bless someone with the ability to play instruments and, and then not be able to use that talent for him. Right, And so they may use Romans 12, verse 6, which says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given, let us use them. Right, And they might say, well, you might have the gift of singing. I don't, but I can really play well. Right? I can play the piano super well. I can play the guitar really well. And the Bible says that we have different gifts and that we should use them. How are we supposed to respond to that? Well, first, we could just look at the context. Romans 12.6 is only part of what's being said there. Paul goes on to list several gifts. right? And it's not gifts that are exclusive to the worship service, but it's gifts that are for the Christian life, Christian ministry, things that are going on daily and not just when the church comes together. You know, talents can be used to glorify God. There are people who are just, they have gorgeous voices. I'm not one of them, but there are some sisters and brothers that whenever they sing, they just sound angelic, right? And then there's the rest of us. So sometimes talents can be used, but that doesn't mean that they're supposed to be used or that worship is exclusive to the use of talents, right? Exodus 35, verse 30 through 35 talks about those who are gifted in wood and stone making. Does that mean that they could come and carve images and or carve furniture, rather, uh, in the presence of the assembly in public worship? Let me take it a step farther. What if I'm an excellent baker? Can I bring a little stove top and like, I mean, I'm going to challenge anybody out there. I'm probably the best waffle maker I know, maybe in the world. And if you think you make better waffles than me, then we need to have a duel so that we can find out who the best one is. I'm so talented at waffle making that I feel that it is a gift of God. I need to be able to make waffles in the assembly for others while we're worshiping to express my talent. Do you get where I'm going with that? Just because we have an ability, just because we're talented at something, doesn't mean that we're going to use it in the worship assembly, 
Because worship isn't about us. And it's not about our talents. It's about giving God glory and edifying one another. You know, that's the vertical purpose of worship is to give God glory and honor and praise for all that he's done. And then the horizontal purpose of worship is to teach one another and edify one another. And that doesn't mean you're talented. It means you're doing as the Bible instructs. And I'll say this as well. When, when someone says, hey, it's unfair that I'm talented at this, but I can't use it for God. This is maybe a tough question for that person to hear, but here it is. Who are we to challenge God about what's fair and what's not fair? Right? Some of the greatest men in the Bible didn't feel talented. Moses said in Exodus 4, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. You know what God said to him? Who has made man's mouth? Have not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. I kind of summarized that verse. There was some more there. But here's the point. Sometimes our talents might work with God's plans, and other times our talents don't work with God's plans. But God calls us to worship him anyway. God calls us to obey him anyway. And it's great when your talent lines up. But when it doesn't, man, talk about glorifying God is when someone says, man, I'm not good at this, but I'm going to do it anyway because God said so. That's great. Romans 9 verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing that's formed say to he who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? I'm kind of lifting it out of its context, but when someone says, hey, it's unfair, I'm good at this and I can't use it, or well, I'm not good at this, so I don't want to do it that way. That's like Clay saying to the potter, why did you make me like this? This is a highly emotional argument. And if your gifts do not pertain to worship, it can hurt whenever you feel like you're not getting to give your best. But, you know, like I said earlier, uh, I'm the best waffle maker in the world. But sometimes our gifts don't line up with what worship is about. Worship is about glorifying God and, and exercising that uh, glory to God and edifying one another. Okay, here's probably the most complicated question <sighs> at face value. Really, the answer is simple, but I'm, I'm going to kind of nerd out on the answer and then give the simple answer, right? So, um, argument number nine is the solo argument. Maybe somebody has tried to use this and it was really complicated uh, whenever they said it, so let's try to break it down. It's, it goes like this. The word... Uh, sing and make melody comes from solo, and that means to pluck or to twang. And so, in the first century, Christians knew that it meant to play or to twang, and so they they knew in context that to uh, sing and make melody meant that you could use instruments because it had a pluck or twang uh, definition, right? Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, right? So there is a pluck or a twang. Now, you might be concerned. And so you go to the, uh, uh, let's see, you would go to your Strong's Concordance or to a Bible dictionary, right? And you'd look it up and you'd see that oh, it is solo from the word melody. It's a verb and it means to twitch, twang to play a stringed instrument, to sing with the harp. And you look at that definition and you think, oh man, there's, there's proof right there that we're supposed to uh, 
sing and play. Well, don't shy away from this argument, and don't let this be the one that uh, pulls the wool over your eyes. Because even though it, at face value it's a strong argument, under the surface it just crumbles away. If you look up all the places where solo is used in English, Romans 5, uh, 15, 9, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Ephesians 5, 19, James 5, 13, every Bible that is worth anything translates it as sing and make melody. In the King James, the English Revised, the American Standard, the New English Bible, the New Revised Standard, Revised English, uh, Good News Bible. Man, there's just so many translations. We're talking scholar, 54 scholars, 101 scholars on different translations, 34 scholars across 14 years. And by the way, a lot of these guys were part of groups that used instrumental music, so it's not like they had a bias against it. They advocated for instruments, and yet they would translate it as make melody or sing. So the evidence is overwhelming when you look at the translators that solo refers to making melody uh, with your voice and with your heart. And in fact, all you got to do, and here's the easy answer to it, is when you look at Ephesians 5.19, you ask the question, what's doing the twanging? What's doing the, 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 the twitching, according to the verb? Right? So it says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and twanging in your heart to the Lord. Where are you doing the twanging? In your heart. It's your heart strings that are being plucked or twanged because singing is an internal and an external form of worship. Whenever you praise God with your voice and you lift up a song to him with your brethren at church, your heart should also be twanging, so to speak. You are making melody with your heart. That's what the Bible says. And so when somebody uses that verse, Ephesians 5.19, to say, well, Solo gives me the right to play a guitar. No, it doesn't. It gives your heart the right to be emotionally involved in the worship service. Okay, here is the final question that people might use. I've not really heard anybody say this um, in an argument that I've had with a friend or a Bible study that I've had with someone. It was in a debate, but I thought it was a pretty good argument that was worthy of spending a little bit of time on. So it goes like this. Musical instruments are an expedient meant to assist with the command of singing. It's no different than songbooks, music notes, etc., right? And so people say, well, we have a praise band or a guitar or a... Uh, piano or an organ, and what these do is they play the melody so that people can sing along with it. And everybody's supposed to sing, um, but these just help us stay on pitch. And they tie it to other things, such as songbooks, music notes, even other parts of worship. Some people in the debates that I read uh, said, it's just like the plate for the communion bread. Where do you find in Scripture that there's a plate for the communion bread? Well, it's an expedient. And so that's what musical instruments are. They're an expedient. It's so inconsistent for you, you Church of Christers, that you say instruments are wrong, but then you'll have a songbook or a, a plate for your communion bread, these expedients. And that's what instruments are. Well, here's how I would respond, and I think uh, how the Scriptures would help us better understand what an expedient is. 
you gotta you gotta know what an expedient is, right? You have to identify it and see if a musical instrument does line up or not. According to the dictionary, an expedient is an easy or quick way to solve a problem, right? And so in the Bible, an expedient is a method of carrying out a command. So if a command is given, the expedient is how you do it or a way that you can do it. It doesn't affect the command at all. It just allows the command to be done. I'll give you an example. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How do you do that? How do you fulfill the command of go? With an expedient, like a car, or a plane, or a boat, or a horse, or walking on your feet, your shoes. So these are expedients. They're not, they're not in the scriptures, but you can use them to fulfill the scriptures. And that's why we have a plate in the communion service. It's an expedient. That means it's something that allows us to pass the bread so we don't, as we pass the bread around, you know, uh, accidentally break it or drop it or whatever. So we've got a plate that it's on. It doesn't add to or take away from the command. Songbooks do not add to or take away from the command of singing. They're an expedient. They help us remember words so that we can sing well. Instruments, however do add to the command. When a mechanical instrument makes the melody, your voice is not making the melody. And when an instrument helps you sing to stay on pitch, it's still making the melody, right? So is it a command for your voice to be on pitch? (laughs) No, it's not. And I would suggest that Christians who sing terribly without the aid of an instrument are pleasing God infinitely more than those who have the best-sounding music with the aid of instruments. So, we should be quick to respond that an instrument is not an expedient because it does not, uh, because it, it adds something, rather. Let me say that again. An instrument is not an expedient because it's not a parallel to songbooks. Songbooks do not make the melody. All they do is show me words and then a melody that I can use to sing with my brethren so that we can edify one another and glorify God. A mechanical instrument makes melody itself. It adds to the command. Okay, so here's the the final question I'm going to ask. Is this really a big deal? You know, maybe people think I'm just geeking out on this or spending so much time majoring in the minors, right? But here's the point. Yes, it is a big deal. John 4, 23 and 24, you got a woman at the well who's questioning Jesus about worship, and he tells her that God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus lays it all out there that it's not about having a feeling. It's not about having a good heart. It's not about being sincere. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, uh, Paul talks about how his brethren were zealous. They were zealous for God but not according to knowledge. And that's a big difference, to be zealous for God without knowledge and to be zealous for him with knowledge. You might think that I'm against being sincere or that I'm against having a happy feeling in worship, and that is absolutely not true. We have to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so I sincerely love to worship God 
And I sincerely love seeing my brethren worship. And there is an energy and an excitement about getting together to praise God. It's such a positive experience. Man, I love it. And I love that we do it in spirit and truth. Because on Judgment Day, there's going to be a lot of people who were sincere but didn't worship God in spirit and truth. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and have done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, that's Jesus talking, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What did they do? They practiced lawlessness. They swapped out spirit and truth for sincerity. And their sincerity, they are their jaws have dropped on the day of judgment because they were sincere. But they were not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Let me just share this story with you, and then I'll be done. When I lived in Cambodia, uh, for three years, we worked with different types of people. We worked with Buddhists, trying to teach Buddhists that Jesus is the Christ and that there is a different way than what the Buddha offered. There were also people there who believed in Jesus, but were not worshiping in spirit and truth, and we were doing our best to encourage these people to consider a zeal based on knowledge and not just be zealous without knowledge. And one time, uh, Brother Wani Chan and I were invited to uh, worship with a group. It was a, a new group of people who believed in God. They had wanted to start their own place of worship, and they invited us to come and be a part of their assembly for um, a few Sundays. And so we went, I think, two or three Sundays, and uh, they wanted me to speak for them, and so I did. But they had a drum set and a uh, keyboard and a guitar. And one of the things that we had been accused of over there was for bringing Western religion. We had been accused that by Buddhists who were saying, ah, Jesus, that's just Western religion. But we were also accused of that by people who were uh, members of denominations and, and groups that had been there for some time, and we'd come in and say, hey, uh, if the Bible says this, then we should follow it because that's what the Bible says. And they'd say, ah, that's just Western philosophy and Western Christianity, and, and, and we just want the pure and simple Bible. Ooh, I just used my own website there. We want the, the pure and simple teachings of Christ, and you're bringing in Western theology. It was frustrating to me because we weren't bringing Western theology. And when we were with that group meeting, you know, we were accused of that by, by people over there. And so we wanted to share with them what is Western theology that's been brought in to an Eastern place? And all I had to do while I was preaching was turn around and point at a guitar. And I said, is that Cambodian? They smiled and chuckled, knowing that the guitar had been gifted to them by an Australian group, a Western group. I pointed at their keyboard, the electric keyboard, and I said, is that a Cambodian instrument? And they chuckled again. They knew where I was going with it. I looked at the drum set, asked the same question, and they all shook their head no, and their leader afterwards talked about, yeah, those. if you come down to think about it, if we were to have instruments that were our culture, then we would have different instruments than a guitar, keyboard, and drum set. I don't know the names of Cambodian instruments off the top of my head, but I could point them out to you. And they never used those 
in worship. They always used the praise band's standard keyboard, guitar, drum set. You want to talk about Western theology, it's bringing in a praise band. And that Western theology is not biblical. The biblical practice is for Christians to get together, to sing songs together, to be edified by the message of those songs, to sing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, to sing about how great it's going to be whenever we get to be in heaven, to sing about the glorious creation that God has made. That's biblical Christianity. And if you are listening today and you are part of a group that uses instruments, I would really encourage you to look at what the New Testament says. What does the Bible say for the church when it comes to worship? And what you're going to find, and I, you know, I've looked at it and I've looked at it and I've looked at it, and what you're going to find, to the best of my understanding, is you're going to find people would get together and sing. And what's so beautiful about that is it can happen all over the world. I have been fortunate enough to sing with people in languages so diverse and various from English. And yet whenever we sing, I'd rather have Jesus, and you know that that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus, that tune, or standing on the promises, you know, or other songs that maybe we're familiar with their lyrics, to sing them in uh, Burmese, in Khmer, in Spanish, in Chichewa, in Tonga, in many languages around the world, and then to hear songs in their language that have no melody that I'm familiar with, but after a few times you get used to that melody and you're singing right along with them in Khmer language, in Jedi, in Chichewa, again, it's such a special connection. Why? Because it's universal. It's universal because any group of people around the world can get together and sing songs, can pray, can study the Bible, can share in the communion, and can offer a collection. That's the worship of the church. Anyway, that's my soapbox for today, and uh, sorry if I took a little bit of time there at the end to go through that, but if you are part of a group that's advocating for musical instruments, I am imploring you, take another look at it. Be zealous for God according to knowledge and not just according to your own sincerity. And for those who... Uh, like me, sing songs of praise. I hope this has been encouraging to you, and I hope that you're looking forward to your next opportunity to worship, whether it's at a midweek service on Wednesday or the next time that the church gathers together on Sunday. I hope you have a great time where you're edifying one another and praising God in song. Well, I never want to close a podcast without reminding people that you can go to the website, pureandsimplebible.com, and you can look up all of the great resources that we have there, uh, study books. Um, there are uh, correspondence courses that take the study book material and put it down in a way where you can study the Bible with people in other places. Look up all the podcasts that are available in the, in the library and all the videos as well. There's just such a uh, great library of content to help share the gospel in a pure and simple way. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcast, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, would you please take a minute and leave me a five-star review. If you could even leave a comment about the podcast, that would be very helpful as well. Until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true. 
about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.